हेलो एवरीवन एंड वेलकम टू अवंतिका डिजाइनरिंग सीरीज और एडीएस एस वी लाइक टू कॉल इट एवरी वीक ऑन वेडनेसडे वी फीचर डिजाइन एंड टेक्नोलॉजी लीडर्स हु शेयर द प्रोफेशनल जर्नी दर थॉट्स ऑन द डोमेन ऑफ वर्क एंड डिजाइनरिंग वेयर द वर्ल्ड ऑफ डिजाइन एंड इंजीनियरिंग मीट मेक श्योर यू फॉलोअर्स ऑन सोशल मीडिया इंस्टाग्राम लिंकड इन फेसबुक एंड ट्विटर एंड विद दैट लेट्स कंटिन्यू विद योर शो The key ingredients for designing any product are curiosity and critical thinking and in fact both of these are closely related being able to solve a problem requires some essential knowledge and background which successively can be satisfied by learning through research and someone who is analytically inclined often has the ability to create new products to understand the importance of curiosity and critical thinking more deeply in this episode we interact with udhaya kumar padmanabhan director of design at designit he is seasoned executive design leader with more than two decades of professional experience in designing for numerous business verticals across the globe he holds his expertise in design leadership and management strategy research service design product management front end engineering user experience customer experience and the list goes on and that's why on our journey of discovering designering on our first episode this new year we talk to him about crafting curiosity Hello UKP welcome to Avantika Designering podcast series thank you so much for joining us on the show today Hey Rohit thanks for having me also great pleasure Super so let's start with an ice breaker on a podcast show you shared the importance to unlearn having the humility to learn even if you have been successful in an area My question is how do you keep going at it since it's usually challenging to remove the experience curve from your mind Yeah great question great icebreaker actually so I'll I'll begin with a quote uh, from none other than Laozu which is a very fam- famous quote that you know wherein he's supposed to have said to attain knowledge you add things every day and to attain wisdom you remove things every day right so yeah unlearning is kind of a you know oxymoron in itself there are too many things uh, that people think unlearning is should be shouldn't be and all of that but i think i will distill it into you know two or three key pointers that has helped me in the you know all along through unlearn uh, you know initially i i didn't know that i was unlearning things and you know reabsorbing reacquiring certain skills but that it turns out that that's what typically unlearning is so one of the core things in you know the challenge of unlearning is that you know we typically are humans all of us are you know driven by something called a confirmatory bias what we know and what we think we know is the lens from which we all you know look at things and perceive this whole you know universe or our existence if you will but yeah what happens is when something contradicts to what we already know it is a given that 11 out of 10 times we will dismiss it dismiss it right so when something contradicts your current understanding we always tend to dismiss it and that's the first challenging challenge of you know trying to unlearn things uh 
what what it means is you should always be on that constant endeavor to seek you know additive knowledge when i say additive knowledge it's all in adju- you know adjacency what can what can a chef learn from probably a mechanical engineer what can what can you know uh, a, a a person who's trying to ride uh, a two wheeler a geared bike what what can he or she actually you know look towards how you know airline pilots actually you know do what they do so there are, there are tremendous you know amazing anecdotal examples around the world but the first thing is to actually make a pact with yourself that what i know until now may not be necessarily you know what is through 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 my ten, tenure on this planet that's number one all the knowledge that we acquired so far from inform- from data to information to knowledge more or less is basically provisional and i say it's provisional what i mean is it's based on the context during which i learned something and and context through which i actually would have applied something but that doesn't mean it you know it holds water like i said and more often than not most of the things that we know no matter how many patents we have what kind of knowledge we think we are or what experts we become we always work on the surface underneath the surface is a very complex and a strange world and that is that is the realm of you know unlearning things so the other thing the point number 2 is first is like i said we need to get away from confirmatory biases the other one is to have a thirst for knowledge a constant thirst for knowledge not necessarily about your craft or your trade but gen- in general you need to be curious but also the propensity to actually question what you acquire it's not that it's not gk it's not facts right for example our independence day is independence day nobody can come back and say it was not august and it it happened in july right that contradicts the belief certain things can't change but most of the things in the world can change so that's the second point you know have a thirst for knowledge but always question that knowledge the third and the most important thing which the industry lacks the academia lacks is this whole process of critical thinking there is no course where there is no you know formal way where somebody has codified to you know transfer the skill it is a transferable skill but nobody has codified it wherein we can train people and also practice this whole notion of critical thinking if you don't have these three things i don't think you can unlearn anything at all forget learning new things so that would be my that was that has been my experience so far i'll take a pause and see if you have any added questions on that oh that's an interesting perspective and uh, i think it covers a lot of um, interesting aspects in in terms of the way you build perspective the way you connect the dots the way you actually develop skill sets uh, to think the uh, interconnected aspects uh, around you in the world and I, and and i believe that for a designer to have this kind of thought process and perspective is 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 beautiful that so also that was a really interesting uh, icebreaker and moving from our icebreaker uh, to your journey with nearly two decades of work experience in the industry we would love to know about your inspiring professional journey and can you share that with our listeners all right right yeah it's it's fast approaching the two and a half decade mark actually it has been very very yeah it has been profound and it has been fun and it has been very interesting and you know i wouldn't be doing or bartering what i'm doing right now for anything else i mean that's 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 the kind of impact it has had on me uh i'm a hardcore computer science maths and stats person by academic credits but has always been this creative uh, person i wouldn't say creative but i i had artistic you know abilities maybe you know it's, it's it i got it from my forefathers a lot of uh, 
people in my family have actually you know have reached you know some amazing stairs across the arts and all of that if you will so and i had the most important thing i think was i had parents who never said no to my whims and fancies they always supported me and i always to used to do all of this craft and art and all of that and then uh, yeah during my first year of uh, grad i started doing some you know projects freelance projects and creating you know visuals i started off as a visual designer back in the day uh, forget ux ui itself was like kind of unknown territory in india but i think i was in the right place right term uh, times and uh, yeah i think synchronicity worked i started off like i said as a hardcore visual uh, designer uh, my strengths were visual design at the, that point in time and i used to do this was the nascent stage of uh, you know the world wide web did a lot of interesting projects fun projects got to know that it's not just skin but there are bones which is information architecture so yeah like i said i had this immense curiosity not 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 this not this must have should do gain all the knowledge in the world kind of a mindset but i always was very curious why is something supposed to be a and not b so i think that curiosity is a super thing that i had you know as second nature and i picked up stuff started working started freelancing uh, right from presentation design to web interfaces to platforms to what not multimedia i mean uh, during the 90s and early 2000s in the digital world if you, if you can name it uh, chances of me having worked on it are very likely and then i moved 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 ahead and was part of you know multiple startups large scale enterprises was was consulting for a lot of people i have consulted for top you know agencies also and i had a very profound learning experience and a rich experience both culturally and financially and you know from an overall growth and then uh, yeah then i suddenly thought that okay uh, have done enough let's come back home back home and i came back and started uh, working uh, you know in the booming it sector in india and i think my career trajectory was amazing i i i climbed the ladder pretty fast and i happened all along my life i happened to be the youngest executive level person in the room uh until now now the things have changed you know now I, i'm not i'm not 25 anymore so yeah i i i i i touched upon a lot of things picked up you know product management uh i have done multiple hats including product manager you know you know strategic designer uh you know co-founders of multiple startups i think i think it has it has been a rich tapestry of multiple roles and that also uh was probably because of my propensity to unlearn you know take up challenges and look at failure and successes as two you know two sides of the same coin either you figured out a way to work or either you figured out 10 ways that don't work either ways it was highly educative for me so yeah in in the interim yeah, i have been part of uh, you know amazing ex- exits and yeah kind of almost all of the companies that i've worked for have either been bought out or they went public so maybe <laughs> i will you know that's why i keep saying uh, you know there's this element of being in the right place and right time and i think somewhere back in 2007 2008 this whole bug of yeah we've done so many things for so many you know companies been part of successful stories why not do something on our own and then when i started i i started off with two distinct uh, startups one was a multi factor authentication which is like bread and butter in the in today's world but back in back in 2005 2006 at least in india rbi just floated a mandate that all commercial transactions have to be multi factor so a very good friend of mine ex colleague we worked together in two three companies uh, you know we figured out multiple different ways in which multi factor authentications can be imposed so that was one of the startups in parallel there was another one that was very interesting 
was about this whole space of biofuels. So we, you know, I was a co-founder of that company also. And then we saw an amazing exit there. And my startup uh, kind of, we get, we had given us a certain amount of time and we built, we built the entire uh, platform. We had filed for a patent. And then unfortunately, you know, we were not able to raise capital. Given that we knew most of, you know, the most of the VCs, most of the private equity players, because the space was a highly regulated one. Banking is highly regulated and nobody wanted to bet on a two-person startup. We were a legal entity. We had a platform. We had demos. We had everything, but we couldn't raise the money. And amazingly, we had three letters of intent and contracts to actually run pilots. Uh, one in India and two in the US. All we had to do was raise some capital, put people on the tea, you know, on the plane, do it. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But then, yeah, me and my friend decided that, okay, the IP will definitely show light at the end of its tunnel sooner or later, but let's move on. So back in 2011, I think we we said, okay, now let's get back into the industry. He found something interesting and now he's thriving. I found something and I moved on. But then interestingly, two years down the line, uh, an interesting uh, thing happened wherein some, some other company actually was filing for a provisional patent for a certain solution that they figured out. And then, you know, uh, a priori search, we popped up and then, you know, they got connected. They got connected with us through some known sources and then, you know, and, and the rest is a happy ending. We basically, uh, you know, gave them the IP. Uh, typically, we sold out without even having a single, uh, you know, customer <laughs> in plate. So, and then, yeah, I, I got back into the industry. I was part of a couple of uh, agencies and then, you know, I moved back to Urban Internet. Uh, Arvind, like you know, is a you know two billion, three billion uh, dollar behemoth in retail, more so in you know clothing and accessories. They wanted to build India's first omni-channel platform, and I joined them as their head of UI UX, and I had a very interesting stint. And then you know some health conditions hit me, and I had to take a break. So after that, I took a break, but I could only take a break for like two months. I I, I couldn't. I got a little you know iffy if you will, couldn't sit at home and all of that. And that's when, you know, again, you know, was talking to a couple of ex-colleagues, friends, and then got to know about Designit. And then, you know, I, I, I wanted to join Designit simply for the fact, like I said earlier, I have been part and parcel of multiple different companies, have consulted for amazing agencies, new people, but I was never an insider. I was never part of a design agency and design it like you know is one of the top 10 service strategic design firms on the planet we pro acquired them in 2015 and yeah i made the cut in 2017 2017 is when we you know i was talking to friends and here i am for about three and a half years now uh, so yeah can't complain this has been my uh, you know trajectory from the day i started way back in 95 96 till now Wow, this is amazing. I think apart from a podcast, we could definitely think of a web series around this interesting journey that you've had. One of my questions here, in fact, multiple of them from, from what you just said, but you haven't been a trained designer. Mm. How is it that you lead a design company now? Yeah, so so yeah. So let me let me throw in a slight correction there. I am not a trained designer from from the, from the lens of did I go to a professional design school and get a you know four-year degree or did a master's? Absolutely, yes. But I think I am a trained designer to the extent that whatever I know today has been self-trained. So yeah, like I, like I keep saying, the thirst thirst is thirst is what makes makes or breaks 
your propensity to acquire knowledge and apply them Acqui- uh, and yeah a lot many today i say th- i see a trend that a lot of them actually are great with what knowledge they have acquired but where they fall through the cracks is applied areas there is theory and then there is applied areas i think what worked in hindsight what worked for me was i forced myself to learn things not to just know things because i was in situations where i had to deliver stuff you know designing a platform uh, you know getting getting things you know that were part of acquisitions were so very interesting from a monetary aspect from a growth aspect but yeah if you don't deliver the goods you don't exist so i think i had the self imposed uh, strain good stress bad stress kind of a thing i i used to stress a lot in a good way to learn things apply things and quickly you know iterate and learn things so i think i think that way i was trained uh, yeah the whole world was my oyster you know i had access uh, to people i had access to i have had a great network of mentors great network of co-designers and uh, yeah i think and the humility to learn <laughs> so yeah to, to answer your question i think my artistic bent of uh, mind or you know my parents helping me to chisel what i wanted to do and then my this curiosity and the fact that i had i and yeah i was always competing with myself i i did not i never thought that i should be an award winning designer because a couple of my friends were great uh, back in valley you know how it works right in the us I and mean, every other designer that i knew of was was you know working on some you know amazing things for companies like google and microsoft and adobe but yeah i didn't i didn't i didn't allow that to mask myself but i was like whatever i do uh, has to be one of its kind and so far so good so i think maybe in hindsight design school would have made me a different kind of a designer but i have no complaints <laughs> so i think craft craft the propensity to know that you don't know what you don't know but there are ways to figure out and being humble uh, yeah is is the secret formula i mean it's not a secret but yeah it's the formula that a lot many designers don't apply super super that's exciting in fact one more question that comes out of you know your linkedin bio it tells us that you've been part of successful exits and failures too yeah the question that i have is how did you push yourself through worst times yeah so, so like i said uh, i think again it, i i think ba- basically i think it was my formative years of high how, how my parents raised uh, me and my uh, brother basically one of the key things drilled down drilled into uh, us was it's okay to fail it's it's okay to not reach failure according to my dad was like not that you got zero out of 100 failure was like you kept you set yourself a goal for some reason you did not reach the goal but that doesn't mean that you know you need to fret and give it up basically his his philosophy in life was uh, the analogy of climbing a mountain yeah you start at the base camp you go to the top but yeah i mean just because you got weak or you got the chills you got a cramp doesn't mean you know if you look back you have made some progress think about how can you make you know little progress small progress inch towards that so i think that that left a permanent brain tattoo <laughs> in my mind and in my siblings also that we are like it's okay it's okay that you didn't get what you wanted to get what 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 is it that you can learn what is it that you can repeat in the, from this and what is it that you can not repeat or not even turn back i think that give, builds resilience but yeah yeah we are all flesh and bones right so it's not that i got disappointed i wasn't disappointed yeah and all of that but yeah we took it in our stride and we always knew that what we had at hand uh, was going to you know m- make a change and, and the, the reason i quote failure also is yeah maybe maybe we dreamt of you know taking this i wouldn't say unicorn but take this as the world's most uh, you know amazing 
multi-factor authentication company and then you know uh, dark days were during years four and five when we couldn't we could raise capital and all that so that i would i would say that we failed from that aspect of not running it the way we wanted uh, to run it but yeah happy ending i i think i think you need to have resilience and grit it's okay to fail it's you know and the, and we all know right probably five or six startup ideas eventually turn out into companies that they are the remaining 95 actually are in the startup graveyards it's okay it's 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 okay to fall but it's not okay to you know fall and not try to get up is is what has kept me all along and and i like i said earlier i look at failures and and successes successes as two sides of the same coin sometimes you get heads you win sometimes you get tails you still win and that's the perspective that you need to have hey did you know design it recently teamed up with international federation of red cross and red crescent societies also known as IFRC to graphically record climate red IFRC's first ever virtual climate summit over 10000 people from 195 countries joined the 200 sessions at climate red participants spent 30 hours discussing global needs and sharing local initiatives around climate change in fact one of the questions that i am curious about didn't you ever feel like being an entrepreneur again and going back to the uh, entrepreneurs hustlers journey oh I, i would be lying if i say no but absolutely yes i think it all depends on where you start all my life has been you know stealth mode startups large scale enterprises which are acquired different companies you know spinning out new divisions scaling up a design team from 0 to 400 people i mean everything has been entrepreneurial intra entrepreneurial kinds and even in design it i don't th- i don't think i'm just working as an employee uh, to my parent company and all of that you have you 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 do have a lot of roles you do have a lot of responsibility and all of that so i, th- I in my mind i'm still being i'm still an entrepreneur it's just that i'm an entrepreneur for a larger entrepreneurship and you know we do things and we help others so yeah Uh, like i said it's a mindset and there are there are plenty of uh, you know the whole world is beset with a lot of problems that can be converted into opportunities entrepreneurship in my mind is more about a you know a mindset and then other things actually you know coals together to form you know maybe it will spin out as a company you want to start a company or you have part of a company and you are helping people so i think it's more of a state of mind so in my mind i am an entrepreneur day in and day out <laughs> excellent and now moving from you know your journey to design it in fact if if one must to read about design it it offers broad spectrum of services including product development transformation services professional education and more additionally this is a layer of different economies and they are unique cultures where you operate in the question that i have is how does one build capabilities to serve such varied areas right interesting question yeah i mean yeah design design is just a term right that we use for want of a better thing it's like it's like a super ocean and you know there are multiple things in design there are so many different streams of design so many applied areas in design and i think in design it i think when they started 25 years back i think this coming september we will celebrate our 25th anniversary what started in a chocolate factory and what what it has you know come through is a, is an amazing story in itself i think i think the as a studio we augmented 
adjacencies. We brought in skills. We brought in people. So we have researchers. We have PhDs in anthropology and public policy on the one side to, you know, somebody fresh off the college on the other side. And, and, and that's what, that's, that's, that's the power of uh, different things coalescing together is what is one of our key strengths, right? In, coming to economies, I think design is a universal uh, leveler, if you will, because problems are problems and people are people. So there are there are layers of cultural you know manifestations that may make a solution work in a certain way in a certain geography as opposed to another one. But the what the goals and the ambitions of the end users or the citizens or the people who are going to consume those products or services or a blend of both actually are the same. So I think our our team of 500 plus people across 17 cities in the globe actually bring in that mix and match, and and we are well equipped uh, to actually you know solve problems at scale. It's not it's easier said than done, but yeah, we never shy away from you know solving problems at scale, and and yeah, that diversity brings in a lot of secret sources to the table. That's that's how we manage uh, to operate, and 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 last but not the least, to operate in different economies and cultures you need to do research. And we are a very research-oriented uh, studio. I mean, the, the, the general notion is when you say research, a lot of people say you don't need to do research. If you want any any inputs, I am the res- I, I'm the research uh, you know, note-taker. I'm the CEO. I've been running this company for 20-odd years. All that is great. But w- what I say, research is deep anthropological studies. <laughs> you know, we, we go where the humans are. We go where the context is. And that's that's one of the key things that we do day in and day out. Interesting. And and while you mentioned about secret sources, we want to know one of them, and which is about the work culture and design it. In fact, in a healthy design culture, the design is applied not only to the product or service an organization produces, but it, but also the organization itself. So, so can you take us through what is the work culture and design it? Yeah. Uh, interesting that we have we have 10 tenets of you know non-negotiables that as design it as we are called as because we are part of design it we are called design it's right so yeah we are a very 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 open uh you know flat uh design studio uh you know we don't get into this nuances of uh you know typical uh, things are changing on the ad world as well but yeah typically there was a hierarchy right somebody somebody spent 30 years and then you have the ladder you know, hippo, the highest paid officer's opinion counts. None of that works in design it. The freshest or the freshest person to the to the most seasoned veteran, everybody has a say. And and, and I think I think that's what makes us a great studio also. We have, like I said, 17 cities, but it comprises of at least, you know, 30, 40, 30, 40 different nationalities. Uh, be that for a cultural lab. And and among the 10 tenets, we have a lot of uh, interesting things that many, many companies also would be having, like, you know, respect for people, respect for craft and all of that. But one of the things that always, you know, stuck to me and I always like and I, I have no qualms uh, in even repeating is one of the rules uh, basically is a policy that we say no asshole policy. So what we mean by that, what the company means by that is you can be the, you can be the greatest and the latest and whatever, but you need to be humble. You need to, you know, you need basically have humility. And, and, and that's a policy that is a non-negotiable we, we, we follow it's okay to voice opinions it's okay to have a debate it's okay to get into a literal verbal fist fight fight for what you think is you know right or wrong but end of the day you do what is right for the problem or solution at hand and and there is no ego or one-upmanship i think that is one of the most profound things that we always strive to you know follow day in and day out and we are not the only ones i mean there are multiple many many companies uh more more so in the creative world which also have similar rules but 
writing rules are just rules right i mean it, it's like it's like the crime you know it's like the laws of a land i mean there are a lot of rules left but you still have crime the the the, the trick is to actually absorb it you know understand why we are expected to follow something question the question the status quo but once you get the essence of what it is thrive and strive to actually you know apply it and it 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 leaves you know it it brings in magic so i think humility and you know everybody's voice matters is something that we 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 really really apply as a non negotiable super so moving from your journey to design it let's talk about your opinion on the world of design and the first one there is design is what matters i mean it is something we always hear how do we design for what matters uh, at a product or feature level is what we really want to know right <clears throat> yeah interesting that you ask i think all design by definition should be something that should be consumable the outcomes of that design should be consumable for the greater good for, at the personal level and the societal level but yeah i mean different different people have different perceptions about it but end of the day it's like it's like a simple analogy because you are one of the you know because you are a great app designer doesn't mean you keep you know designing apps take your paycheck and move out is that what you want to do or do you actually want to take a paycheck design apps and actually see through completion and and look at how can you you know improvise that i mean it's a very subtle difference but that's what it is end of the day how you do the latter is a function of what you design is it going to go in the mainstream and are going people going to use it and if they use it is the, is it going to make a small you know dent in their universe is it going to make a change in the way they lead you know their day is what is what separates uh, you know an industrial strength production uh, you know production lens of looking at you know churning out output so so it's basically the you know output versus outcome kind of a debate that the world is grappling with right what we say when design what matters is actually what matters to human is what we say right we don't we, so what we say is we we design we look at design as a problem solving uh, you know a skill you know methodology and all of that but yeah we don't we won't do anything we don't do anything that we think we won't work for example uh, as a policy we don't work with <clears throat> we, we generally don't work on you know companies uh, that uh, produce uh, tobacco products right so there 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 are certain boundaries that we have so yeah so we basically look at is it going to help a human and how what what is go, what is going to change for that human we look at it from that lens and that's our definition of design what matters to people humans because what matters to humans is what matters to business is is actually our fundamental uh, you know reason for existence my next question is the design thinking process can take weeks and even months to produce a prototype on the other hand processes like design sprints take just 5 days design thinking teaches the theory but fails at offering a cohesive systematic approach to go about solving a problem the question that i have is do you think design thinking is not a great methodology for practically innovating a product interesting question i think the whole design community itself is you know <laughs> divided between yes and no this is your question but my, here is my take this is i mean these are my opinions only disclaimer it's not anyone else's and you know i th- i think there's a huge confusion between sprints and design thinking in my mind sprint is highly chronological you can run anything in sprints you can run multiple design thinking workshops and sessions in sprints like a three day sprint or a five day sprint or a two week sprint and all of that and and design thinking 
I think it has been from, you know, from the time, I think late 60s from Herbert Simon to, you know, R. Kelly in the early 80s, 90s. I think design thinking has been happening for the last 60 years. It's just that it's found its seat at the table and suddenly it became a buzzword. Now, starting from that being a checklist of a corporate strategy team to being, you know, something that is a must-have by agencies, it has had its fame. And I think the, I think the fame itself is, you know, eating, eating its fame away. Another parallel in our world would be the TQM, uh, you know, wave that we all have seen. Some of us at least would know. Uh, yeah, total quality management was the rage, right, in the 80s, in the 90s, and, you know, early part of the 20th century. But I think its own success, the, the, it's, the reason for its failure was its own success because too many people, too many experts came in, too many people had their own views and opinions of what it is. I think design thinking as a process, as a method, is highly contextual. Can you actually use that as a methodology to, you know, innovating a product? Absolutely, yes. But can you do that in a three-day workshop? I haven't heard of it. But yeah, maybe it's 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 not impossible, but it's improbable. I think context is what drives the outcomes uh, of a design thinking, you know, process. And you know, there are multiple things. You can do workshops. You can do this. You can do that, and all of that. But I think I think design thinking has been portrayed as the thing for you to do to solve all your global problems, and that is an absolute misnomer. It is one of the many many more you know amazing tools and methods that is available to us you know in the design realm today what design thinking brings to the table is inclusion diversity you know everybody's voice matters and it also builds yeah it's easy to say empathy so one of the most misused word after uh, you know the word god right everybody talks about we empathize we empathize ask anybody about how their company or how they as an individual go about empathizing i can guarantee you will not get an answer at at best you will get some theoretical uh, you know, gibberish about oh, this is what empathy is. So design thinking as a process, as a construct, brings in disparate people into the room, the business guys, the design guys, you know, the marketing guys, this, I mean, different things, all the people who matter, right? Design what matters. Again, I'm, I'm talking from that lens. You get into a room, uh, of course, today getting into a room is, you know, completely changed, but you basically get converged with everybody. You figure out point, you know, different varied disparate points of view, and then you figure out, what needs to be done? What doesn't need to be done? The design thinking, design sprints that you're talking about helps once you know what you need to do. Design thinking helps you figure out what we need to do and how we can go about it. And then, you know, once once you have a essence, fair a direction on that, that's when sprints come. But yeah, I think the industry is peppered with, you know, we did a one-week sprint and changed, uh, you know, a hundred million dollar product to a billion you know dollar product in six months. Uh, very rare outliers, but yeah, that that's not. It's it's like the man with the hammer syndrome, right? Design thinking is not the hammer for every nail that seems to be a design problem. So one needs to use the rigor and the common sense to, you know, it's a tool. When do I use a tool? That's that's the metaphor. Superb. I I I'm, I thoroughly enjoy listening to you know things that you've been saying, and it's it's brilliantly uh, I think uh, uh, being uh, conveyed. Moving from there to my next question, there's a misconception that inclusive design is a unifying user experience. Designing an inclusive and accessible interface doesn't mean creating a one-size-fits-all product because there's obviously no such product. The question that I have for you, UKP, is how can designers develop 
inclusive designs for different sets of people who will have an equally productive experience using it. Yeah. So again, again, like, uh, you know, the design thinking continuum, you know, the world again is, you know, split into design thinking, uh, you know, universal design and inclusive design. A lot many people think both are the same. A lot, some, some people say both are different. Uh, I would tell towards the latter. First and foremost, people need to understand the difference between inclusive and, you know, universal design. So I think, I think, so I'll ask, I'll start with a simpler one. Universal design is, is more about creating a product or a solution or a service or, or a way of thing, basically an outcome that is universally appealing, right? It's not about the process. For example, logging into a web, web application. There are only finite ways of doing it. You put a username, you put a password. Irrespective of the caste, creed, culture, we are, you know, basically, you know, the a gazillion, you know, segments, dimensions into which, you know, demographics and psychographics break out, there are only finite ways of logging into a logging into an application, right? And that is that is that so much so it becomes acquired behavior and an expectation. It is not the process. It is a way of achieving a certain goal. Whereas inclusive design, a lot many people mistake inclusive design also to be, you know, something that's an outcome. No. Inclusive design is a process that it has its roots in accessibility. For example, people talk about accessibility. Does accessibility mean designing my products or solutions so that a partially blind person, a colorblind person, a partially deaf person, or somebody with physical disabilities? Yes, they are also part of your, you know, go-to-market strategy. But it is it is constrained only to that cohort of people, right? My 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 application is you know colorblind proof is just a feature, but it still does not give coverage to people who can be disabled, not from a physical standpoint, but contextually. Simple example, you are riding the metro and you know it is super packed, like a can of sardines. And you, for some reason, you have to get into a, and more so this example is apt in today's day and age. You have to be part of a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams or a virtual meeting. You don't need to speak up, but you have to be part of a meeting. And you are in the super packed, you know, crammed metro you know you know going back home or going to work and all of that that's the context i'm just setting a scenario because of the voice levels because of the noise levels for all you know you, you know whatever is being discussed or whatever is being spoken may not be audible to you that again is an accessibility issue from the context of my current environs not necessarily because i had you know i, I have a congenital or you know uh, i have a temporary hearing problem so people mistake, when I say people, I'm talking for designers, there's this huge mistake about <clears throat> using these as, you know, accessible design and universal design and inclusive design as synonyms, and they are not. Like I said, the key difference is universal design talks about the outcome, but inclusive design, again, is a method, it's a way of, uh, you know, approaching problem uh, statements, and, you know, it's a process. So the three key tenets that I can recall, uh, you know, if I, you know, for inclusive design is first and foremost, you need to recognize that there will be exclusion. Not everything that gets built gets, you know, gets gets used across, you know, the seven and a half billion people on the planet. You know, you have ride sharing as a construct in today's world. Do you have a Uber uh, kind of an experience in, uh, you know, continental Africa? Maybe yes, but is it uh, is it is it universal? No. This is where you could probably think about inclusive design. The second key thing for inclusive design is basically you can solve for one specific problem statement and a cohort of user, but you should always keep at the back of your mind that this needs to have extensibility, right? Now that the problem is being solved in a certain way, 
there will be different cultural manifests and different geographical constraints. Can we, t- live, can we actually take the same solution stack and offer it to them in a different way so that the source and the destination, the goals and objectives of the end user is agnostic to the way the initial design was conceptualized. For that, basically, you will have to bring in this whole notion of diversity, not just, not, not just in, you know, in companies, but as designers, we need to bring diversity in the way we actually go about solving the problems. So to recap, you, you have to make peace with the fact that you will have to recognize that there will be exclusions. And you, in, in, in inclusive design, you actually focus on the pockets of you know, exclusion. And you need to extend the solution to everyone. The outcome of your inclusive design can eventually morph into a universal design. So this is a very subtle but a very profound, uh, you know, delta that more often than not people, you know, people actually forget or don't tend to realize and then go about, uh, you know, calling an apple as an orange. Hey, did you know DesignNet has partnered with Tech for Good, an international impact innovation catalyst focusing on social and environmental changes. Together, they will define impact strategies, value propositions, and organizational design for companies looking to make a positive environmental and societal impact. Through a blended technology and a design-led approach, they help organizations develop and implement strategies with an eye on the triple bottom line. My next question is connected. to the world of DesignNet and Wipro. In fact, DesignNet has an umbilical cord connected with Wipro. Mm-hmm. However, the cultures, working style, and approaches are entirely different from what we've heard in the last few minutes. Mm-hmm. But it brings along a deeper understanding and access to robust technology solutions too. How does leading a design studio, which is a part of a large technology giant company, help? Yeah, great question. I think Wipro. Yeah, we, we keep we keep you know we keep talking uh, about the fact that Wipro actually is a mini country in itself, right? We have 180,000 people. We are spread across the globe, you know, with more than 50 different, you know, and we have we we have humongous different people, you know, numbers of people with different nationalities, and we have presence in more than 50 plus countries and all that. And and given the behemoth that we are in the technology world. If there is anything that can be built, chances of Wipro having already built it or having the capability to build it actually is a given. Now, how does it help for, you know, uh, you know, design is considered as poles apart from technology, but I have been a strong proponent of design is just design if it doesn't get engineered. I always talk about the fact that great design needs greater engineering because that is what brings a product or a solution or, or a service into life. So, yeah, I mean... A large technology company, then you know, you know, you know, going and buying out one of the top design agencies, uh, yeah, they just didn't go window shopping, right? It was a thought through uh, decision. They spent top dollars to acquire uh, DesignNet because Wipro feels fundamentally feels that everything is actually a design problem. Now, whether that is UI UX design is not the thing. Everything should be looked upon as a design problem that we are. Uh, you know, trying to solve. Not that technology doesn't have design. Technology also has design. People, architect, you know, architects design, you know, the architecture, there are so many things. But a design-led uh, strategy helps you to look at it from the goals and objectives of what the problem solution service is going to help fulfill. And it completely recasts the way you look at going about building, uh, you know, systems. 
so culturally i think i think wipro has wipro 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 has very strong tenets of do's and don'ts and and that applies to all of us and in fact it intersects with you know general principles of humility customer first uh you know do what or do all it takes to actually you know deliver the goods keep up on your promises and all of that every large company has it i think in terms of uh, different working styles now that now that we are 5 years through the acquisition i think i think the larger organization also understands uh, why design what is it that these designers do what is this beast called design i think there's a lot of uh, investment in terms of time and energy being spent by the larger you know organization uh, today in wipro if you ask anybody about design it or design thinking or you know what they do the chances of them saying i'm unaware is uh, you know zero or near near zero so people understand that yeah everything that we do we do it from a design lens but initially yes uh, yes there were frictions if you will like you know technology looking at things from just a feature functionality perspective and we looking at from a human perspective and questioning uh, you know the wise designers are are very very notorious for asking questions right and it may not go well so we also recasted it uh, and you know we also we also have realized that it's not about what you ask but it's also about why how why you ask and how you ask so i think it has been a fun ride now we are we are in a very you know we are deeply embedded within the larger uh, you know uh, enterprise people know us we know people we build you know relationships and and they also you know they also ensure that more often than not every single deal that they are chasing every single solution that they are you know planning to come up with they ensure that they reach out to us and it has been it has been a very interesting ride so i think it is more of uh, two different mindsets coming together uh, basically the power of two is greater than the power of one kind of an analogy so it it's it's fun and and what it helps us understand also is to figure out the you know the limitations the viability the feasibility of tech solutions right it is easier for us to sit and think about how is payment you know pay, how 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 is this whole notion of payments going to look like in the next 5 years we can build a cool sexy prototype create all of that stuff but if it's not if the current day technology or the current infrastructure uh, you know doesn't allow you to do it then yeah it will fall, fall fall you know flat so that's why you know it helps us understand and appreciate what it takes to actually you know bring our pretty concepts and pretty solutions to life so it makes us also you know have a sense of uh, awe if you will about it's 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 yeah a button for me may take like four lines of code for a developer right on a numbers game they put more efforts than us so yeah it it helps us to realize that you know it's a partnership and it's not a competition so we have been reasonably i would say reasonably we've been highly successful and and the kind of solutions uh, at scale i mean we are we are you know we are running we are running Uh, deals that are like half a billion a billion and all of that and this this is huge right so no company will sign up with us if we do not bring in that you know services offering on a platter and i think we have been pretty successful and we are still at it well said i think uh, the point of uh, not competing and being partners is a very interesting perspective to the entire fact of how uh, you know to different school of thoughts one which you said is very technology oriented one which you said is very human oriented come together and can actually uh, create uh, newer opportunities in your business opportunities of that beautifully said and while we been talking about technology uh, in fact its usage has become indispensable but at the same time there's a school of thought that expects technologies to become far more humane the question that i have for you ukp is 
how can one do that using designing? Can you share an example from your experience where you've seen designing actually helping turn technology more humane? Right. Yeah. I mean, there are the, like like a few hundred <laughs> examples that I can recall. But yeah, in the interest of time and, and for context, I, I'll give you an example. So a couple of years ago, Max Healthcare, I'm sure most of you are aware of Max Healthcare, right? In India, reached out to us and said, hey, we want, we have large, you know, augmentation and expansion plans and here, here is a way in which we operate today can you guys come back to us and help us figure out you know how can, how can we do things that will increase the span of our coverage so we said yes we, we took up the challenge we we said yes we put the entire studio on it we had a very intense you know research session uh, long story short we actually helped them disintermediate healthcare as a service basically in the in the traditional world you have something you, you fall sick you have something you visit the hospital what we did was we told them why not take the hospital or certain services of your hospital actually back home and today a lot of companies are doing it not that we were the first ones ever to do it but yeah from the context of max healthcare we actually helped them take a lot of services back home and and in in that it so happened that it was not just the human from a patient centricity aspect or from the patient's you know caretaker aspects but we figured out that one of the things that you could actually take back home is services like, you know, uh, can, can, I, can I give a blood test at home, which, which actually happens today, right? You book a blood test and people come. But at the heart of it, like I said, the surface level looks all, you know, amazing. But underneath, there are a lot of, you know, moving parts. So in the traditional world, it, it so happens that what, these guys are called phlebotomists. They are trained. They are trained to actually, you know, draw blood, take your vitals and all of that. At, at, you book an appointment at you know typical phlebotomist come to your, comes to your doorstep at the designated time and he or she draws your blood samples puts it in the in the vials and you know puts it back in their ice pack or are they off they go but a traditional phlebotomist's life is not just they do house calls on a one-to-one basis typically there's a roster they, they are given a trip sheet and they they pretty much cover probably five or six or sometimes more households you know scattered across different parts of uh, the city or a certain location it so happens that once human blood is drawn it has an expiry time of about three hours or two hours very very short span of time it has to reach the lab before that now look at a situation where this phlebotomist has been given six trips which you know takes him across the nooks and you know nooks and corners this disparate corners of a certain you know area within a certain city now once he draws the draws first blood literally he or she needs has this conundrum of should I go back to the lab, drop this blood sample, and then go back and beat this customer? Maybe it is theoretically doable, but there are unknown unknowns, uncontrollables. Maybe there's a traffic jam. Maybe the road is blocked. So the next appointment goes down flat. Assuming this person goes and you know drops the you know blood sample to the lab nearest lab, and then goes on his or her way towards you know customer number two. Maybe he or she is not able to arrive there at time and that has a larger ramification from a customer experience, patient experience standpoint. So during this course of exercise, actually we figured out that, you know, it is it is unfair or unreasonable to expect the phlebotomist to collect blood, draw blood and actually have literally, you know, literally have bloods on their hand and not actually give it back to the uh, labs, designated labs. So we introduced this whole notion of a runner, right? And now in hindsight, it may look like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal, but yeah. It is a big deal because what we, what, what we proposed was the phlebotomist actually draws blood, takes the sample and basically, you know, inputs the fact that the blood is, uh, you know, blood, blood sample is ready and, at, and you know, pre, 
pre-defined pre-triangulated areas here is the runner the runner's job is to basically go pick the blood sample and go off on his or her way to actually drop the blood sample back to the nearest lab within the shortest span of time this frees up this whole tension for the phlebotomist about worrying about you know dropping the sample in person and going back so in hindsight if you look at it it, it is human from an employee experience standpoint two two amazing things it brought in this entire role called uh, you know a runner and and there are multiple runners in probably in a, in a group like you know max healthcare right it generated a lot of interesting things it generated a new class of you know work and it generated employment opportunities for these runners right all they need is a bike and all they need is an app and they basically you know act as people who complete the journey it also was more humane from an employee experience standpoint where the phlebotomist now is focused on what he or she is supposed to do on time every single time that is do house calls go meet the patient do do whatever tests they have to do draw blood do all of the shit and hand it off to this guy so so this is this is a very profound very simple but very very profound and more often than not uh, you know forgotten kind of uh, service interventions that companies should be doing employing you know great employee great employee experiences mean you know greater customer satisfaction and greater and these two metrics if you add your your business will thrive and then you generate employment there, there are a lot of other things that pop up but yeah the, the essence of it is you know step out think look at it from a larger thing and see how can you do this better so this is an example where we use technology to actually disintermediate friction points for you know a class of end users also ensure that customer experience gets augmented goes high up and also you know helps the hospital to keep up their sls every single time super this is really interesting and how i wish that our conversation goes on for <laughs> uh, some more duration but in the interest of time i wish to come to our last question and in one of your blogs you've written if user experience is the face and gateway to a digital asset then great code is the bloodline that keeps it alive thriving and accepted at avantika we have a similar type of approach called as designering which is the blended approach of designing uh, of of design and engineering the question that i have is why is it important for designers to educate themselves with basic tech knowledge and vice versa yes interesting question i th- i think i had touched upon it earlier also because uh, i i fundamentally believe the face and gateway will come to life will actually solve problems will actually make an impact to a company's a business's top line or bottom line only when it it is there alive thriving and it's being consumed by people now the only way a digital you know product or a solution or a service can come to life is by great engineering what why it is very important for designers to you know understand the nuances of uh, you know technology they don't need to code it's it's good if they not you know, if if they learn to code basics and in today's day day and age a lot of people have actually gone ahead and figured out that you know they they enjoy coding not not and some have actually you know moved from designers to from a design world to a you know technology world and some technologies have actually come back and become designers interesting things happen in a domain but if you do not understand the building blocks of you know or, or the process in which your your blueprint will get actually built i i think it 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 is just a concept right you can sit and you know fire your tools and have your workshops and have your critique meetings review meetings you can put a fancy interface 
you can solve the world's you know hunger problem or you can solve the world water problem it will only remain as as a concept uh, you know to see you know see light at the end of the tunnel so traditionally designers have operated in their own world and you know technologists have operated in their own world and and both the parties were you know were were only as good as the constraints or 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 you know the freedom that they had to you know have at hand to actually conceptualize things a lot many times what what you as a designer will envision should happen uh, you know looks like doable but the technology stack in use or or you know the, te- the technology world in itself uh, you know maybe is not mature or maybe is not ripe for that to see to life simple example is ar and vr i mean 10 years back uh, you think ar and vr did not exist it existed google came with a glass concept uh, you know many many years ago you know adoption was an issue you know it was since it was an emerging technology there were a lot of uh, you know loose ends that they were trying to you know uh, sort sort out for so netnet i think it makes sense for designers to understand that it takes a lot of grit and elbow grease to actually bring their designs into life by technology people and developers also need to understand that designers are not designers are not this you know cocky you know you guys don't understand we are the creative types in fact coding is as creative as being an artist or a designer if not more i think once that that piece is made magic happens you cannot just design in silo and expect somebody else to actually you know uh, bring it to life it, it doesn't happen at the same time technologists cannot think of you know the fact that yeah, here is a epic here is a user story here is a problem that i need to solve and feature yes it it is like you know okay button is on the extreme left and cancel button is like 6 feet away yeah hypothetically and and and, and say code complete i have done the feature now it is left up to the designer it doesn't work that way both of them have to understand that there are two sides of the coin and if one side does not want to see the other side uh, you know meld with the other side if you will uh, then then yeah i mean we will we will only be creating fiction and and you know and not facts so super important for uh, designers upcoming designers to understand that whatever they do in the digital realms uh, at least whatever they do their partner in crime to see that through life is is you know the technologies super important this has been an amazing conversation you kepi um i thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm sure that our listeners are going to have a lot of learning and take home from this thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for joining us on our show sure it's been a pleasure i hope your audiences will like and yeah fun doing it thank you Hey there we hope you enjoyed our show do write to us on ads@avantika.edu.in we look forward to your opinions feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show do tune in our channel next week on wednesday for a new story on hub hopper or wherever you get your podcast from follow us on facebook instagram linkedin and twitter